Four positive drug tests this year among his horses has led trainer Bob Baffert to hire his own veterinarian to administer medication. What ramifications could this have for the entire racing industry? Plus, what can we learn from a relatively small country that is threatening to do away with its entire breeding industry? We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll sack. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch. It's a hip-hopping finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course, in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. And although the brain trust, and I use the term loosely, at America's Best Racing has once again excluded this show from its Fan Choice Awards finalists, we'll just continue to churn out the same high-quality stories we've been doing for almost nine years. And thank you to the loyal listeners who continue to enjoy this podcast. Bob Baffert has continued to put up big numbers. 25 graded stakes wins this year as of the Breeders' Cup. He had only 17 last year, and that was without a pandemic, and over $18 million in winnings. He earned just over $10 million last year. But one other number in describing Baffert's year stands out. Four. That's the number of positive drug tests that have come back from his horses. Two of those belong to female superstar Gamine, you remember Gamine, don't you? Speech draws alongside, Gamine digs in, and Gamine turns her away. Gamine won by the length of the stretch. She won by 15. Gamine rolling on home to win the Breeders' Cup Philly and Mare Sprint. Following Gamine's win at the Breeders' Cup, Baffert told Kenny Rice on NBC's race broadcast that Gamine's drug positives were, quote, BS stuff. Four and a half hours later, on the same broadcast, just before Baffert saddled Authentic to win the main event, the Classic, he walked back that swagger a little bit. Baffert called the drug positives embarrassing and said, I thought I ran a tight ship. We're going to run a tighter ship. We want an extra layer of protection because what we went through was pretty difficult. Three days earlier, Baffert had announced the hiring of veterinarian Dr. Michael Hoare of the Hagyard Equine Medical Institute. According to a statement put out by Baffert, Dr. Hoare will, quote, add an extra layer of protection to ensure the well-being of horses in my care and rule compliance. There's a lot to unpack here in trying to figure out what this means in the broader picture of training and racing horses. So to help us sort these issues out, it's good to have the perspectives of both a horseman and an administrator slash legislator who sets and enforces rules. For the horseman's view, we have reached out to recently retired New York-based trainer Gary Contessa, whose 35-year career ended just this past March. Mr. Contessa won over 2,300 races, including grade ones with Sipican Harbor and Do It With Style. From the administrator's perspective, we have with us former Colorado Racing Commissioner Sean Byrne. He is now the director of the equine program at the University of Louisville's College of Business. Thanks to you both, gentlemen, for being here. Let's start with Sean Byrne. 
How does it typically work with private vets versus track veterinarians when it comes to the oversight of horses? That's a that's a tough question, but it's a good question, and thanks for having me, Barry. The track veter there's only a few track veterinarians on site, I believe, and Mr. Contessa can probably attest to that. There's only a few veterinarians that are on the back of the racetrack, and they should be working with the trainers, informing them of what they're doing. As far as private vets go, those are usually outside the scope of the racetrack. Is that correct, Mr. Contessa? Yes, very much so. Your your track veterinarians are there to ensure a sound horse on race day, to assure that a horse that maybe showed some unsoundness in a previous race is now healed properly and ready to go back into the races. But the track veterinarian, the state veterinarian, has no involvement with the distribution or the treatment of horses in a stable. That's strictly in the hands of the private veterinarians. Well, Mr. Contessa, how typical or atypical is it for Bob Baffert or any trainer to hire a vet basically to account for medications given to his horses? Well, I think Bob Baffert has about had it with all these positives. And you know, when I was growing up as a kid, Everybody was talking about whatever Wayne Lucas did. And now it's all about Bob Baffert. Let's face it. Bob Baffert is on top of the game and everything is revolves around all eyes of the world are on what Bob Baffert does. So Bob has gotten a few very serious hits this year and a couple of he's had to endure a few black eyes this year, which we haven't seen a lot from Bob Baffert. You know, it doesn't usually happen. And if I have the floor here, if you want to talk about it, Gamine and Charlatan came up positive for lidocaine. Okay. Lidocaine. If you go to Walmart, you can buy a triple antibiotic cream with lidocaine. You can buy a, a sunburn cream with lidocaine. And what happens is Bob Baffert is one guy and he's probably, and now this is just a guess on my part. He's probably overseeing 200 horses at all different ages, you know, that are in his organization. So that one man cannot be sure that one of his grooms at a certain racetrack is not putting triple antibiotic cream on a cut of his that has lidocaine in it and transferring it to the horse. And that's where the private veterinarian comes in. I don't know why anybody would use lidocaine. We don't use lidocaine very often in this industry, but it is so many over-the-counter medications that people are using and then handling your horses. And if you look at the test results on most tests, it's given in nanograms, which is one thirty thousandth of a gram. I had a positive once for lidocaine, and we, you know, we did a normal stall search and a barn search, and the groom on his own went out and bought a triple antibiotic cream that had lidocaine in it and was putting it in a cracked heel on the horse's heel because it is a good healing thing, but never realizing that it's being absorbed into that horse's body and it is going to show up in nanograms. We're actually testing in picograms now, which is one trillionth of a gram. So these are minute positives that are being generated by the labs. 
And, you know, we have an ultimate insurer rule in racing. It's been challenged many times. It's never been defeated. But the, what the ultimate insurer says, rule says is if you're Bal Baffert and you have 200 employees, you're responsible for every horse and every employee. Anything that happens, even if you can prove that a groom inadvertently used lidocaine on one of your horses in some topical cream, that groom is not getting suspended. You are. And you're going to lose that purse money. You're going to lose the status of that graded stake that you won or, or placed in. And you are going to bear the brunt of that penalty because you are the ultimate insurer. You are the trainer. Bob Baffert announced the hiring of this veterinarian, Dr. Michael Hoare, to be, quote, an extra layer of protection. Sean Byrne, what do you think Baffert means by the term extra layer of protection? I think Gary hit it right on the head, Barry. You know, Bob has, what, 200 horses. He's managing people more than managing each of those individual horses. And I agree with what Gary said as well. I think Bob's fed up with the positives. But with the testing being so minute, he's going to ultimately be held accountable when these things come to fruition. Somebody has to be held accountable if somebody breaks the rules. And ultimately, it's the trainer. And and Bob is responsible for this. I think it's a good move on his part. It's interesting because... If he gets a positive, it's still going to go through the process of a hearing with the stewards, and the stewards are going to enforce the rules. And as regulators, you have to enforce those rules. And when it's appealed, it's then appealed to the Racing Commission. And when it comes up to our level, we can consider what is called mitigating circumstances. And basically, those don't justify the conduct, but out of mercy or fairness, we can take those mitigating factors into our decision-making process when applying the penalty. The purse is still likely going to get taken away from a positive, but we could reduce the penalties on the trainer. For example, and we'll use the an environmental contaminant, such as with the Justify case. If that's proven that it is an environmental contaminant, we can use that in our consideration. It doesn't change the fact that the trainer still had a positive for an illegal substance. But what it does is it allows the commission some latitude to be able to reduce the penalty if it is proven that it is an environmental contaminant. Mr. Contessa, when you were training, who dispensed medication to your horses? Our private veterinarian did. But there were times when I trained 150 horses. And honestly, like Sean just said, I was managing people, not horses. And I was was spending most of my time watching horses train and managing people. And I had to rely on my people to do things right. I would think that this added layer of protection that Bob is talking about, you know Bob has had it. Bob does not want this to happen again. And bringing in this veterinarian might just help him establish new rules of how they're going to do things in their shed, teach the assistant trainers how to monitor the grooms and keep any illegal medications out of the barn, maybe come up with a program on testing the hay that you're feeding the horses because justify, we know come up with a positive for scopolamine. Now that's a drug that has already been proven 
is grown in ragweed and it ends up in hay and horses come up positive for it. It's already been tested. Trainers have come up positive for that many, many times. And it's a very, I mean, imagine you have to be careful about something you're purchasing and feeding your horse. And I mean, Bob can't be testing hay himself, but maybe this veterinarian coming into his, maybe this extra layer of protection is going to be a whole new set of rules taught to the assistant trainers, taught to the foreman, taught to the grooms to keep these environmental contaminants out of the horses because Bob cannot afford to lose another grade one win or placing or be, you know, be on the front page of a newspaper for another positive because it's really got to be wearing thin on him. And he's really taken a beating over this. Is that how you viewed the role of your vet when you employed a private vet with regard to medications, all of the things you just mentioned? No, that is not because your private vet is too busy to get involved with something like that. So I'm guessing that Bob still is going to have his private vets and their job is to administer regular medications that horses need, whatever they need, take care of the problems, do x-rays, but bringing in this other vet, I don't believe, I believe Bob is getting another set of boots on the ground, another set of eyes to go into his, his program. And, and he's basically saying to this veterinarian, look, I'm going to pay you to straighten out this mess and make sure it doesn't happen again. Go in there with your eyes and your expertise and tell me what we're doing wrong and how we can avoid this happening going forward. We're joined here on In the Gate by recently retired trainer Gary Contessa, as well as former Colorado Racing Commissioner Sean Byrne, who now runs the equine program at the University of Louisville College of Business. So, Sean, from the standpoint of an administrator or a legislator, how do you approach the idea of an extra veterinarian being employed by the trainer? I think it's a great idea, Barry. As Gary said, it gives Bob another set of boots on the ground and this veterinarian will coordinate with all the other veterinarians to know exactly what's going into a horse, and they should be able to lay that against the withdrawal times. And I don't think we've talked about that yet. There's a there's a published list of therapeutic medication withdrawal times. And I know that in Colorado, we published that in the condition book for our horsemen. And we had to put a caveat on it, and I can actually read you the, the caveat. It says adherence to the estimated withdrawal times listed below will not guarantee that detectable amounts of these medications will not be present at race time. And and just for example, Gary used uh, an example of lidocaine, and the estimated withdrawal time is five to seven days. That's an estimate based on science. If you and I and Gary, all three of us took ibuprofen, it's going to metabolize in our systems differently. And it may be out of my system well before it's out of yours or Gary's. And the th- same thing happens with horses. And we had this unique rule in Colorado, which I really liked. And every time I mention it to other states, it- it's something that other states should incorporate. And I love this rule, but it never really gotten taken advantage of the way it should have. We had we had an association with industrial labs in Denver, which is one of the better labs uh, for testing in the business. And 
if a trainer entered a horse in a race and he knew that he had given a horse a therapeutic substance and he wanted to make sure that it was not going to be in the system on race day, he had the, the ability to do a pretest on the horse at a cost of about $100. And he specifically would have to spell out, I believe that I might have lidocaine on my system. Can you test for it? If it came back positive, he could scratch from the race with no penalty. And I thought that was a great rule. Oftentimes, trainers, and, I, and I'm not trying to point a finger at trainers, but they didn't take advantage of this, and they ran their horses. The horses won the race, got a drug test, came back with a positive for a substance. Then they had to, to pull a split sample in order to fight it, and it cost the owner between $700 and $1,500, plus they lose the purse ultimately at the end of the day. And for the cost of $100, you could have saved that headache if you've known that your horse got it. So to bring it all back around, I think this veterinarian is going to know what all the private vets are putting in the horse's systems, and they can coordinate those withdrawal times to make sure that this is minimized. How can you be sure, though, of the added vet's motives if he's being paid by the trainer? That's a great well, question. Well, I guess I'm going to... Yeah, that's a very good question. Yeah, I mean, the added vet is being paid by the trainer for a purpose. Bob has had enough black eyes. He doesn't want another one. And the school of public opinion is really starting to turn against him. And what I think the other vet has a simple purpose. He's being hired by the leading trainer in the world to oversee his medication problem. And I said his medication problem, and it is a problem, but is his program and make changes to it in a positive light. This Colorado rule is fantastic, but I've never heard about it in any of the bigger tracks. And one of the biggest problems we have in racing today is there is no track out there that has the same rules as another state. You go state by state by state and withdrawal times change and rules of using therapeutic medications change. And you have to really do your homework before you ship a horse to another state to race because their program could be completely different from the state that you train in or you race in. So I think all of these things are going to be part of this new veterinarian's job is to coordinate the rules from different states until we get a blanket rule in the entire United States, which is in the works right now. I think his job is going to be to coordinate any therapeutic medications on horses that are being pointed for races in other states, and also to come up with a program to make sure a quality control, let's say, to make sure that this doesn't continue to happen in that stable. I think it's a really good thing. And I think it, he's, he's made a very positive choice to hire this veterinarian and to do something about this problem. But Sean, if you put your commissioner hat on, don't you have to consider the possibility that this added vet basically acts as the chief masker of drug positives like Lance Armstrong had a guy doing? No, I don't think that's the issue, Barry. You've got to believe that, as Gary said, that he's working on the best on behalf and in the best interest of Bob to make sure that he doesn't get these positives. You know, I've worked under something similar, you know, building on what we did in Colorado, we only allowed for Lasix on race day and 
buttes or ketoprofen banamine. They were all forms of anti-inflammatories. They're non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. But that was it. Everything else, we, we considered it, quote unquote, a zero tolerance policy. And where we're headed, if this federal legislation passes, is there won't be any medication allowed on race day. So it's going to be this job, this veterinarian's job to make sure that, that the horse's systems are clear. And he's got to have Bob's back here, as Gary said, to avoid these black eyes. Gary, do you think employing an extra vet as Bob Baffert is doing is going to become an industry trend since the sport is under so much scrutiny now with two prominent trainers under a federal indictment? I do not think so. And the reason I don't think so is I don't think your average trainer can afford such a, a move. I mean, that this guy's veterinarians do not come cheap. I'm sure Bob is paying a very healthy six figure wager to this, to this veterinarian to take this job. And very few other trainers can do that. But I do believe that if we get the legislation passed, first of all, I, I want to say one thing. I do not believe not by a long shot, looking at Bob Baffert's positives this year and what they were for, I do not believe that it was anything other than a mistake getting too close with a, with a therapeutic medication or with a feed supplement. I don't believe by any means, looking at these positives, that Bob was cheating with these things. I, I am convinced this was not a he was trying to take an edge to win races. That guy has the best horses in the world. He doesn't need an edge. The only thing he needs is the races to go because he's got the best horse. I believe that this is a hiccup in Bob's program and his protocol. And he knows he dropped the ball on medication and he is doing this to make sure it doesn't happen again. And I don't think this is coming cheap to him, but he can afford it. And he has to do something to fix this problem. And I think it's a very, very smart move on his part. We put a rule in on my way out on the last year I was leaving in Colorado that we could access, that a trainer was required to have all of his veterinary records, similar to what Gary said. I mean, they're, they're, doing that and keeping it documented, the commission put a rule in that allowed them to have access to those records and to, to go take a look at them. When, you know, and, and if a particular instance came up where a horse had a positive, you could go right back and see when the horse was administered that medication. So, so Gary was doing all the right things, you know, and, and some trainers these days, you know, trainers these days are coming around. Some of the old school trainers didn't keep as as meticulous of records as, as Gary kept. So bottom line, what, if any, long-term ramifications for the industry of Bob Baffert's move to hire an additional vet might there be? Uh, let's start with Sean. I think it's a good move on his part. But as Gary said, it it's going to be expensive to retain a vet in that particular role. And then you know, the other part of it, too, you know, we're talking about expenses is at this point, those haven't been spelled out under the new rule and what it's going to cost to do the additional testing required under the new the new bill being put forth by Senator McConnell. So it's great for Bob that he can afford to do that. But as Gary said, a lot of the smaller trainers are really going to have to crack down and make sure that they're managing their people 
and they're working with their vets to put the right medications in the horses in a timely fashion. I think that this whole Baffert idea of hiring this veterinarian is to not to, I guess, ease the way the public is looking at him. Because let's face it, the public, for the most part, doesn't understand the difference between lidocaine and, and nanograms and picograms and, and dex, dexotrophin, which is a cough medicine, and betamethasone, how we use it. They don't, they don't understand that. All they understand is Bob Baffert had four major positives. And, you know, everybody immediately is of the mindset, cheat, got caught, this, that, the other thing. They don't understand therapeutic medication. Just think about a football team. I've always compared my stable to a football team. And football players must have therapeutic medication. They're 200, 250 pounds, 300 pounds. I mean, they have a tough job. Horses are 1,200-pound athletes, and they need some therapeutic medication as well. And I think Bob, his program just lost control of that a little bit, and he is absolutely doing the right thing to get this medication problem back under control. I don't think it's going to have any ramifications on the business because most other people can't afford it. But I think in the school of public opinion, it's going to go a long way to let the public know that Bob is trying to fix a problem and he has to fix this problem. But might they need to afford it down the line? I I don't think so. I think, but I do think, you know, most trainers have four or five grooms and, you know, 16 horses, 12 horses, 20 horses, you can control that. You're there every day. You can watch what the grooms are having. You can see what's in the boxes. You lock up your medications. You know exactly what the veterinarian is putting into horses. And, you know, when a veterinarian came into my barn, they had to sign a ticket that we treated this horse with this medication today and we put it in the book. And when we started thinking about entering that horse, we went back and checked the medication that we put into that horse. I just think that all trainers need to be very cognizant of what's going on in their stable. But when you have a stable, the magnitude of Bob Baffert and you can't be controlling it, one person can't be controlling it. I think this is a great idea for him. And I think it's probably going to get his problem taken care of. I think he's going to have another set of eyes, a very professional set of eyes in that stable. And I think his problem is going to hopefully going to be behind him. I hope we're we're not going to see this again. Sean Byrne, Gary Contessa, thank you both so much. This is a situation I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more out of over the next few weeks. Thank you, Barry. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. A country that conducts thoroughbred racing is threatened with the loss of its breeding industry. What lessons can we learn from what's happening in Norway? We'll get into that when the In The Gate podcast continues. Welcome back to In The Gate. When you think about the centers of the racing world internationally, what countries come to mind? The UK, of course, France, Australia, Japan, you probably wouldn't think of the Scandinavian countries, Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. 
but there is thoroughbred racing there. Not too much, though. Of the 56 racetracks in the three countries, only five tracks are for thoroughbreds. The rest are for harness, which is much more popular in Scandinavia. We mention all of this because, as you know, the strength of the racing industry is only as strong as the breeding industry. And in Norway, for example, the local jockey club seems to be working toward a phase-out of locally bred horses. The country has just one thoroughbred track, Overval, which happens to be where one of the top riders in Britain these days, William Buick, got his start. The racing secretary at Overval has basically cut purses in half for races written for Norwegian breads. The jockey club had earlier in the year stated that those races would be run for higher purses than open races. While you may not necessarily care all that much about racing in Norway, think about this. Here at ESPN and many of the networks that compete with us, the experiments with new types of shows, new technologies, etc. happen on smaller shows. Those developments that go well will eventually be used on the marquee events. So with what's happening in Scandinavian racing, the question is, what can thoroughbred jurisdictions around the world, including here in the United States, learn from what's happening, try to figure out best practices, and avoid the ones that aren't producing the desired results? We want to learn. So we have reached out to Dennis Madsen, who is the head of racing for the sports governing body in Sweden, Svensk Gallup. We welcome Mr. Madsen here to Win the Gate. First of all, Mr. Madsen, are the problems we've heard in Norway specific only to that country, or is the sport in a similar situation in your country, Sweden, and in Denmark? Uh, the situation is pretty similar, but uh, what uh, separates the three countries are that uh, Norway uh, has uh, much smaller breeding numbers than Sweden and, and Denmark has, but the situation is pretty much the same, and we interact a lot with each other. Norwegian horses starts in Sweden, and, and Swedish horses starts in, in Norway. Those breeding numbers that you mentioned, are those thoroughbred numbers, thoroughbred and harness, or just harness? That is, the, the, the numbers I mentioned are thoroughbred only. Harness is about more than 10 times bigger in Sweden. Uh, we have three permanent thoroughbred tracks, and there's over 30 harness tracks in, in Sweden, uh, and so numbers are generally 10 times bigger uh, on all parameters. Well, bring us up to date then about where the breeding and racing is financially in certainly your country, and if you can expand on the others as well. Yes, certainly. Uh, actually, we had quite surprising numbers for Norway. 72 mares was covered this year, and, and that doesn't sound a lot, but Norway has been down to almost single digits uh, for, for some years, um, uh, at least not as high as 72. In Sweden, we cover over 300 mares a year, but we have been on a downward curve for the last, say, 20 years. 20 years ago, almost 500 horses, and, and now we are about 50% down to 240 coverings this year. So it turns out to be about 200 Swedish folds a, a year, just under 200. Yeah. Denmark is a little bit lower than Sweden and has always been about half half as big as uh, Sweden, I would say. But with the Swedish numbers uh, going down, uh, that proportion is, is obviously a little bit bigger. How much has the pandemic running behind closed doors affected things financially? Financially, uh, at the moment, not that much. 
because in Sweden we are 10% owner of the Swedish Toad. And actually, when other sports closed down in March and April, May, uh, we were still running, so we were the only betting product uh, together with the harness racing. Uh, so actually, the numbers for the Swedish Toad went up about 40% during that period of time. So financially, we are in the same position as, as earlier, but obviously with no spectators at all uh, on racetracks since, since March. Owners are, are obviously tired and it's difficult to train trainers to, to get new owners and, and the remaining owners to put money forward to buy, buy new stock. So, so obviously it has an, a big impact. How concerned are you that if the breeding industry, we're talking thoroughbred, dies in one country, it could affect both breeding and racing in all three countries? That could absolutely happen. We have a lot of imports. Norway has survived with many imports for a long time, but we've seen that without homebreds, it's difficult to fill the races. So it goes hand in hand. So we need imports uh, from from other countries in Europe, but we certainly need need the homebreds uh, as well. So both parts are important, and um, I would say we we cannot afford to get lower numbers homebreds than than we have uh, at the moment. Well, not only like do most of the horses that race in Scandinavia come from elsewhere, but Hong Kong, given its remote location, pretty much imports all of its horses from other countries. But we mentioned there is a breeding industry, too. So which model do you prefer, the hybrid model with some homegrown horses and some imported or the Hong Kong model of importing them all? Uh, for us, definitely the, the hybrid model, as often it's cheaper to, uh, for stakeholders to invest in horses if they're homebred, and it gives more people the opportunity to, to be involved in racing. Hong Kong has the plus that they, they have a high pressure of uh, people who want to be owners, so they haven't got the problem that they can't sell all their stock. They have money enough to import all their horses from, from abroad. Dennis Matson, head of racing for the sports governing body in Sweden, Svensk Gallup, joins us here on In the Gate. Now, obviously, as you alluded to, the breeding industry is pretty deeply entrenched in the countries most associated with racing, the UK, here in the United States, France, Japan, etc. But in countries on the next rung of the ladder, what kinds of problems similar to the ones we've discussed do you see developing? The, the most recent problem is that the um, government in both Norway and Denmark is pondering to enforce a, a cap on how much money a punter can lose every month. And that amount is about $2,500 a month. So if a, if, if a punter loses that, say, in the first week of the month, he cannot bet for three weeks until he gets like a new, a new set amount every month. And it's not a big problem for, for most punters, but for those who turn over, big uh, amounts that would, would hurt a lot and it would be a big crisis for turnover uh, overall if that uh, law is enforced. So that's uh, what we fear. Now you must be talking only about people who bet electronically. If you bet with cash, that's not traceable. Actually, we started to trace our funders uh, about one and a half year ago. Uh, so all bets has to be tra- traced, so you have to flip in your, your ID card in, in order to, to be able to uh, bet on track. The same law is enforced in Denmark now in the future, so it's, it has to do with any anti-money laundry. So 
we can't track uh, on track that in. Well, given what you've seen with that in mind in Scandinavia, what would you consider to be best practices for track owners, horse owners, and breeders around the world to follow in working through these financial situations skillfully, especially in countries where the breeding industry is not so well entrenched? Well, it's, it's a billion-dollar question. If I had to answer to that, I think... Uh, I could sell my services to many countries because we <laughs> all face the same the same problems. So I, I don't think that's a quick fix, but it depends on uh, getting owners, public to like horse racing, to see it as an, an possible uh, investment opportunity to invest in horses, uh, to have fun. But it, it is uh, very difficult to persuade people to own horses. Do I dare ask how you think the situation in Norway and Sweden and Denmark plays out? Yes, you do. <laughs> I think we have a lot of hope. I think we need to focus on the right things. I mean, you, you remember the, the recent Breeders' Cup juvenile Phyllis Turf winner on Pearl. She was actually out of a, a dual classic winner in Scandinavia, Matawi Pearl. There's a Danish owner of, of the Breeders' Cup winner, Gamin. So, I mean, there's a lot of interest in our countries and there's a lot of possibilities to sell horses on. Be it broodmares or geldings who, who can run in another country. We have two former Scandinavian horses, uh, Swedish horses, running in, in Dubai at the moment. So we need to uh, get people to, to understand that there is a possibility to sell on broodmares, uh, geldings and so on uh, to other countries and, and make money in, on them that way. We'll look forward to seeing how all of this develops. Dennis Matson, the head of racing for Svens Gallup. Thank you so much for a few minutes, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Our thanks once again to David Matson, Sean Byrne, and Gary Contessa. As Thanksgiving fast approaches, the racing world should be grateful that the shame of Calder Racecourse will be no more. Gulfstream Park West, whatever you call it, will soon cease to exist. Don't let your derriere be hit by the door. The last race there, Thanksgiving weekend, will mark a quiet end to a period of tumult for seven years. In 2013, Calder and Gulfstream ran concurrently, which stretched the horsemen thin and heightened fears that racing would collapse from within in sunny South Florida. Calder, of course, is owned by Churchill Downs, which opened a highlight fronton where the torn-down grandstand used to be, a slap in the face for racing that brought frowns. Gulfstream leased the racing meet from Churchill for six years. That term will end in just a week or two. The property will then become a shipping logistics warehouse, and a troubled era soon will be bid adieu. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, TuneIn, the iTunes Store, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. Maybe the brain trust at the America's Best Racing website will find us one of these days and include us in next year's Fan Choice Awards, where we should have been this year. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We hope you're safe and healthy as you listen to this, and we'll see you next time.